greatly appreciate that. And again, we thank you all for your kind words and your generosity and your kind hospitality. And really appreciate that indeed. So as we said this morning, uh, a good Fimidea, or it's good to be here. <laughs> and we enjoy every moment of it indeed. I would like you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to St. John uh, chapter 3. St. John chapter 3. Let's read from from the verse one to the end of the verse twelve. Or perhaps okay, from verse one to the end of the verse twelve. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, Verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, he must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listed, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot not tell whether it cometh or whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of God. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knoweth not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we do know, and testify that we have seen, and he received not our weaknesses. If I have told your earthly things, and he believe not, how shall he believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Amen. And we know that God in his mercy and in his divine grace, that he would add his own blessing to his word, to each and to every waiting heart. As we come to God's word tonight, let us seek his help together in prayer. Let's all pray. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for thy precious word. Now as we come to preach and to proclaim thy word, give us help from heaven, we ask of thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. This Lord's Day evening, I would like to look with you and consider with you upon the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. How are we to understand the kingdom of God? So often times, the Bible makes references to the kingdom of God. But what is it all about? What does it mean? Tonight, I would like to take as my text the words of verse 5 of this chapter. 
Look there with me, please. Verse 5, John 3. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But what does it really and truly mean when, as it is presented here, the kingdom of God? Well, let us understand by way of introduction four things to understand when the Bible here speaks of the kingdom of God. For us to understand it, first of all, for there to be a kingdom, first of all, there has to be a king. There is no kingdom without a king. Secondly, this king has to be ruling. He's the one that governs, if you will, his kingdom. Rules his kingdom. He ruled by redeeming and governing his people. Thirdly, whenever the scriptures, whenever the Bible, and whenever the word kingdom is used in the Bible, it always refers to a people. In the Old Testament, it refers to Israel. In the New Testament, it refers to the church, or if you will, the body of believers together. And when we comprise all those things, I guess we will have a proper knowledge of what the kingdom of God really and truly is. But, fourthly, this kingdom also has within it a will or a law. The people who are ruled by this king do his will and love his laws that governs our lives as we live for him. Now, as we look at this passage and as we look at our text, there are four types of kingdom that the Bible speaks of. And it is very important and very vital and it becomes imperative if we are going to grasp and understand what this kingdom is all about. And when we look into the scriptures, we see clearly that the Bible speaks of four types of kingdom. First of all, we have what is called the earthly kingdom. Secondly, we have the heavenly kingdom. Then we have a spiritual kingdom. And fourthly, we have an eternal kingdom. And all these correspond in one. The kingdom of God. But I would like to ask a question and let the Bible provide us with the answer. What are the requirements to get into Christ's kingdom? Now, among men, there are various divergence of opinions 
when it comes to this question. Especially in Jamaica, uh, church people would tell you that if you want to get into Christ's kingdom, then all you have to do is just come and baptize in water. And you're on your way to heaven. Others would say, well, just be faithful in church. And the list goes on and on. But what are the requirements to get really and truly into Christ's kingdom? Because there are some things that are required based upon scriptures. And so for the limited time that we have tonight, we want to consider those four requirements concerning the kingdom of God. Then notice here with me in the very first place of our text that there must be the need for regeneration. The need for regeneration. Again, look back with me at our text. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. That word regeneration can just simply put to be born again, or as we would have it to say, the new birth. To be born again, regeneration. Now, the first thing we must understand here is this. When Christ said he must be born again, and he was having this conversation with Nicodemus, as we said this morning, I believe, if, if my memory serves me correctly, this was not simply a command, but actually it was a statement of fact. Nicodemus, you must be born again, but understand this, it is not something that you can do on your own. To be born again is not when we say a wee prayer. It's not when we raise our hands in the air or some minister touch us and pray for us or those things. What Jesus was telling Nicodemus here is this. Nicodemus, it is true, yes, that you must be born again, but understand something is not something that you can do on your own. Now, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to regeneration, we must understand that it is, is a supernatural work of God. If you will, it's something that God does. And you and I have absolutely no contribution towards it. How do we know that? Look with me please at verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That's what we would call earthly birth. That is true of each and every individual who is present here tonight of a, the earthly birth. That which is born of flesh. Do we see here a wide distinction, if you will, a great difference? That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit. And this is how we know that you and I have no contribution when it comes to the spirit of God in regeneration. It is the act of God and God alone.
This is the birth that man has no contribution to. No man, no one help God in doing this for you. God does this by himself. In theology, it is described as monogistic. Simply put, it is the act of God alone. The opposite to that is what we call synergistic. The doings are the act of man and God. But when it comes to regeneration, the new birth, we must understand that it is monogistic. It is God working alone in our hearts. If you will, it is God alone who raised us from the dead. Remember when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and they were crying, they were weeping because their beloved one has passed away. And they says, Master, if, say, if, if you were here earlier, a few days, he wouldn't died. But isn't it that God knows best? Amen. Who alone was able to bring forth the dead? I'm sure we all in some ways or another have attended the funeral service, passed a grave, have, have you ever seen a dead person being raised? Absolutely not. And as Christ stand there at the tomb of Lazarus, it was Christ himself, the Savior himself, who said to the very dead, Come forth. And the Lord Jesus Christ used that physical thing to illustrate spiritual truth. Because just below that verse, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I alone can bring you to life. Why? Because you were dead. How are we? Isn't the scripture says, that we were dead in trespasses and in sin. If you will, turn with me please to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we are told this wonderful truth. How are we to understand it? How are we to embrace it? Ephesians chapter 2. This is how the apostle Paul puts it to the Ephesians church for them to understand it. They must know that it is God alone who is working here in their hearts when it comes to regeneration. Verse 1, And you had he quickened, that word quickened, carries the idea to be made alive. If you will, Understand this, Paul is saying, you were dead. Now you are alive. But who made you alive? It's not something that you did. It's not, not even something that you said that made you alive. It was Christ by his supernatural power that raised you from the dead. And gave you life. So he says, And you had he quickened, or you have he made alive who were dead, how? In trespasses and in sin. Here do we see the state that we were in, a state of deadness.
Now, regeneration has to do with the Spirit of God giving us life. It is the Spirit of God that gives us life. Jesus made this clear as day in John 7 verse 38. In the Old Testament or in the Old Dispensation, it is described as living water. Now, especially in Jamaica, where I am from, there are a lot, a whole lot of church people and they will tell you that what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus here is that you must baptize in water. Now, we are not against baptism. We do believe in that, but not as a way of regeneration. And so people would have you to believe that in order to have salvation, to be born again, they would say, Christ was telling Nicodemus to get baptized in water. But that is not so. The scripture never teaches that. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water, what does that really and truly mean? The Lord Jesus Christ was using Old Testament shadows to illustrate spiritual truth. So what does this water here really and truly mean? Well, before we turn to it, if your memory should serve you correctly, just over in chapter 4 of St. John, but we don't have to turn to it, just listen. Just over in chapter 4, you will recall the woman that Jesus met at the well. She came to draw water from the well. But to cut a long story short, Jesus says, if you drink of this water that you're drawing from the well, you will continue to thirst. Ever thirst. Why? Because this water that you're drawing, it will not suffice. Then Jesus says, but the water that I shall give you. What was Jesus talking about? But the water that I shall give you will be in you, dwelling in you, into everlasting life. Do we see a great difference here? If you will turn me please to Isaiah chapter 55. Make it Isaiah chapter 44. First of all, to understand what this water is in the Old Testament. Water has always been mentioned, but what does it refers to in Isaiah chapter 44? If you look with me, please, at verse 3 to understand something. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3. We are told this. For I will pour water upon him. That he thirsty and, and flows upon the dry land. I will pour my spirit Upon thy seed. Water is here a symbol of the Holy Spirit. They can be used interchangeably. 
when Jesus says to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, that exactly the understanding. Because to be, to be born again of God's Spirit, it has nothing to do with the physical act of life. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was referring here to the act of the Holy Spirit. Then if you look at chapter 55, that's Isaiah chapter 55, and I believe the verse 1. Isaiah chapter 55 and the verse 1. Hearken to me, he that follow after righteousness, he that seek the Lord, Look unto the rock where he are found. I think I have the wrong verse there. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 55. Yes, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come he to the waters. O everyone that thirsteth, come he to the waters, and he that had no money, come he, buy and eat, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It is here referring to the Holy Spirit. Come here to the water. The act of the Holy Spirit. See, when it comes to the requirements of the kingdom of God, first, there must be the need for regeneration. But let us understand this, beloved friends and beloved brethren. When it comes to regeneration, it is not something that we act up on our own. Notice here with me then in the second place, not only the need for regeneration, but notice here with me in the second place, the need for repentance. The need for repentance. Then we need to ask the question, what is biblical and scriptural repentance? There are two words that are being used to illustrate this truth. The Hebrew word suggests to turn around. Just thinking that you were going a direction and then you automatically turn around. That's the Hebrew word, how it expresses it. And then when we come to the Greek word, the Greek word suggests a change of mind. So then, repentance is not an emotion. If you will, repentance is not just feeling bad, feeling guilty. It is not just saying, I'm sorry. Oftentimes, preachers would call upon people in churches and let them have an emotional feeling. But before you know it, a couple of days, perhaps a couple of months, perhaps a couple of years, you don't see those people ever again. They are back into the world. So, what is true repentance? 
Repentance springs from the will, not emotion. There has to be a will towards repentance. It is not just a feeling of remorse or sadness or things like that. Anyone can felt this way oftentimes. Does that really and truly mean that we are repentant of our sins? Repentance, true repentance, has to do with the will and with the mind. In the scriptures, let me show you an example of true repentance and also false repentance. For example, if you turn with me please to the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. I'm sure you know the story well as I do here we have the story of the prodigal son. You will remember he asked his father for his possession and he left, went away, if you will, lived his life in sin. Look with me at verses 17 and 18 of Luke chapter 15. And this is what we are told. And when he came to himself, Verse 17, and when he came to himself, and this is the idea, he pondered in his mind. But he not only pondered, he acknowledges that all that he has done was wrong, was sinful. Against his earthly father and against his heavenly father. And when he came to himself, how often times that is true of the believer. We have to talk with ourselves and come back to ourselves. Because of the, the guilt, because of the wrong, because of the evil that we have done. And when he came to himself, he says, how many hurt servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Here we see an act of true repentance. But he not only said it to himself, he was going to put it in action. True repentance always accompany God's forgiveness. Look with me please at verse 20. Same place at Luke 15. And he arose and 
came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell at his neck and kissed him. Before he could utter a word to his father, the father forgave him. Do we see here the very key to the Christian life? The key in living the Christian life, there has to be forgiveness. When we sin against God, yes, that is true, but even forgiving one another. Here we have repentance in action. This young man, what he did, he turned around and came to his father. His mind was active at work. Therefore, beloved friends and beloved brethren, in order to find repentance, your mind has to be renewed. Your mind has to be changed. This is what truly, really makes us to be new creatures in Christ. This verse came to mind. Turn there with me, please. Romans chapter 12, if you have time. Romans chapter 12. And I believe the words of verse 2. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. This is how Paul explained it, emphasized it. Romans 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. Don't adapt to the lifestyle of this world. That's the idea. But rather, adapt something else. And what is that? And be not conformed to this world, but be he transformed by the renewing of your mind that he may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do we see that when it comes to the Christian life, one of the great fundamental truths is how we keep our minds. The most active part of you and I has to do with our mind. Did you know that God also holds us, holds us accountable of what we think? Not only how we operate, but actually true how we think. Do we think aright with our minds? Paul is saying here, be transformed with the renewing of your mind. So then, To be a part of God's kingdom, there must be the need for repentance. Your mind has to be changed. Your mind has to be renewed. We have seen true repentance. 
Now let us give an example of false repentance. And I believe that this is true of every church. Because there's no church on earth that is perfect. And when we say the church, we are talking the visible church on earth. Did you know that the Bible says that Judas actually repented after what he did? But yet, the Bible indicates to us that he went to hell. And so many people ask the question, and there's no problem in asking the question, but what does it mean? Because the Bible teaches, the Bible says that Judas repented of what he did, but went to hell. For example, if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. St. Matthew chapter 27, and we see this to be true. If you look with me, please, at verse 3, I believe. St. Matthew chapter 27, and the verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, that's the Lord, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Notice something here of great importance. The Bible said that when he saw that he was condemned. Condemned by who? Here we see that the same people who he so-called trusted in, as we would say in Jamaica, selling out Jesus. The same people that he trusted, that he confined in, that he placed his confidence in, in identifying Jesus as they would take him away. These very same people, now it reached a stage where they care no more for him. They condemn him. He, in a sense, have identified Jesus. They have taken him away. They are happy about that. That's all they want. The same people who he sold out Christ to now turn their back against Judas what does that teaches us it teaches us this you cannot befriend the enemy we cannot befriend the enemy we cannot befriend the world why? Because the world is no friend of truth. The world is no friend of God. We cannot befriend the enemy. The enemy has only one desire. And what is that? To see your destruction. Put it this way. If you die now, the enemy would greatly rejoice. Had no compassion, no remorse. When Judas here saw that he was condemned by these people, he felt sorry. He took back the money to them. He said, here. They said, we don't care about that. 
we got what we wanted. We got who we came for. And so he felt sorry. Judah's repentance was not one that was true, real, genuine from the heart. Just like somebody would say, I'm sorry, but give no deep Part of it. That's the idea here. Judas just felt sorry. That's it. Felt sorry that he betrayed the Lord and now the same people condemn him. Verse 4 tells us that. Of Matthew 27. Repentance is not to see your sins, but repentance is to see the Savior. Jesus said this, but unless he repent, he shall all likewise perish. Repentance is therefore a key to enter into the kingdom of God. We have seen in the first place, that in order to get into God's kingdom, there must be the need for regeneration. Secondly, the need for repentance. But notice here with me in the third place, the need for reliance. The need for reliance. That speaks to us of faith. Who do you rely on? If you will, who do you depend on as you live the Christian life? This reliance speaks of our faith in God. Without faith in God, it is useless, powerless. For us here, this Lord's Day evening, without faith in God, our Christian life is empty. Paul repeats it, quoting from the Old Testament. The just shall live by what? By faith. We cannot truly live the Christian life without faith. And this was true also of the Old Testament believers. Faith was the key to success. It is this faith that enables us, help us to overcome the struggles of life daily that we face. If it wasn't for faith in God, beloved friends and beloved brethren, we would also have been back into the world. Do we see here the importance of asking God daily 
to increase our faith that we might depend on him each day. This reliance teaches us that we cannot in no way depend on self. Why? Because self will fail. Take no confidence in yourself. Why? Because self is described as being sinful. One of the wisest men in the scripture tells us, teaches us something in Proverbs 3 verse 5. I think we all know that verse. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not under thine own understanding. In order for that to be done, it must take great faith. But in closing, when it comes to God's kingdom, not only the need for regeneration, the need for repentance, the need for reliance, but in closing, equally true, the need for righteousness. Amen? The need for righteousness. This speaks to us, if you will, of Holiness. To be holy. Now, it is absolutely true that although we are believers and although we are on earth, we are not going to be altogether holy or perfectly holy. Why? Because we are in the flesh. And make no mistake about it, never boast one bit. Our flesh can easily fail us. We must have no confidence in this flesh because it is corrupt. But God also requires from us holiness. And when it comes to this righteousness, this holiness, we must understand something, beloved friends and beloved brethren. We must put away our so-called good works. The prophet Isaiah described our good works as a woman monthly psyker. He says, all your good works are as filthy rags. That's the idea. We dare not boast in our good works. Because our good works are abomination to God. So therefore, we come to the question. If we are going to have this righteousness, what does it mean? How are we to gain it? How are we to possess it? You see, as professing believers, there is what we must understand that we have no righteousnesses of our own. For us to enter God's kingdom, there must be the need for righteousness. But whose righteousness? It is described in the scriptures as imputed righteousness. This is the righteousness of our blessed Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ take his spotless righteousness and place it or imputed or given it 
unto us. That's how we are seen to be righteous. We are not righteous because we are so-called good people. We are righteous, beloved friends and beloved brethren, because of the imputed righteousness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In closing, if you turn with me, please, to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Chapter 5, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, rather. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he had made him to be sin for us. Now, what does that mean? For he had made him to be sin for us. If you will, God the Father treated his son as if he was a sinner. That's the idea here. Christ, if you will, bear the punishment that we deserve. All that we deserve was placed upon him. The Father treated him as if he violate all these laws, but only on his people's behalf. For he had made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Look at this. That we might be made the righteousnesses of God in him. If we are going to boast, we can only boast in God's imputed righteousness that he placed or given unto us. Here we see the truth, beloved friends and beloved brethren. When it comes to the kingdom of God. But first of all, let's understand that this act has to do with God. Even as we live the Christian life, we totally depend upon God to carry us through, to take us through each day of our lives and as each day comes and go we have to daily pleading confessing the kingdom of God is not something that we can buy into the kingdom of God then dwells in the hearts of his people. May God in his mercy and in his grace bless his word to each and to every waiting heart. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee, O God, that we are a part of the kingdom of God and you have made us to be so. 
Lord, we acknowledge tonight that we have nothing to boast in. Lord, we acknowledge that we did not contribute anything to our birth. But it is all of God. Write these truths, O God, upon our hearts, that we might live in day and night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.